We're going to start with Matthew 3, 11 through 12. Uh, this is from the words of John the Baptist. And in fact, after I read this scripture, you can throw that picture up on the screen behind me. But it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he is, who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork, also known as a pitchfork, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Amen. Uh, Before you sit down, let's just take a moment and let's just pray this morning and just say, God, whatever you want to do, I'm I'm open to it. Whatever you want to speak to my heart, I'm going to open up my heart. It's not your job to open up my heart. It's my job. I'm just asking you to speak to it. In the name of Jesus and all that that name represents, God, I'm asking you to touch this church this morning with whatever season that we're going in, whatever direction that you're taking us in. God, we trust you with wherever you're taking us. In the name of Jesus, we give you glory this morning. We give you honor this morning. We're thankful this morning. We had a great week this week and it's going to get even better from here and I'm just thankful for where you're taking this church in the name of Jesus amen you may be seated today I'm going to be talking about threshing floors and they're going to keep that picture up behind me real quick but before you start talking about threshing floors you see threshing floors was a location it was a place where things got done it was a place where things got worked on but in order to start talking about threshing floors you have to first start by talking about what is actually produced in these threshing floors and so in biblical times the the plant that was harvested quite a bit was wheat and wheat is so vital to the to the just to the culture uh, when you go through the Bible. Was, and, and Jesus used wheat as symbolism. It was symbolic for so many things throughout his parables and throughout his preaching and teaching. And so today, when you start talking about wheat, I want us all to understand exactly what it is before you just jump right in the deep end with everything else. As you can see, the picture behind me, it points out chaff and grain. You see, chaff and grain are both together combined would be considered wheat. But in order to produce anything, you have to remove the grain from the chaff when it's harvest time. And so that's what happens at a threshing floor. They would, they had a process in order to remove the grain from the chaff. And in the modern day church, we're so hungry and so desperate in order to reap the spiritual things of God that we often overlook what that actually means. We say, God, I've been praying for something. I've been sowing my prayers. I've been sowing my faith. I've been, I've been believing in something. But we often don't understand that the reaping process of any harvest is so much more difficult than the sowing process. You see, in the sowing process, at least from our point of view, it's pretty simple. You dig, you plant, and you wait. God's the one that's going to water. God's the one that's going to let, the, let, let whatever you planted grow. And it's our job to wait. And it's often that waiting time that seems to be the hardest for the church, the hardest for us. You say, God, I've been praying for however many months or years or weeks or whatever it is, and I can't wait any longer. But the timing of God has always been perfect. And so if you think that the waiting is so difficult, just wait until the reaping actually takes place. 
You see, the waiting is simply, the, the, the sowing is simply digging, planting, waiting. But when you start talking about reaping, it's so much more difficult. In fact, the Bible talks about tares and, 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 and an enemy sowing tares within the soil next to wheat. And, and the process in order to remove tares along with the process of taking that wheat and making something good about it. You see, reaping is the cutting away of tares, separating it from the wheat, burning tares, carrying it to the threshing floor, separating the wheat, the the grain from the chaff, burning of the chaff, and then using the leftover grain to do it all over again. You see, in God's eyes, he's fully aware that reaping the blessings that God gives us is so much more work than actually just praying for something to happen. And we get so hung up on saying, hey, I'm waiting for God to give me what I've been praying for, we often overlook the process it takes to manage the blessings and the miracles that God gives us in the first place. You see, in the life cycle of wheat, you have to cut away and burn more than what's actually good and edible at the end of it. And the same thing happens for us. In order for you to become usable, profitable, and good in God's eyes, you have to be willing to cut away and burn more of who you are when you started than who you're going to be at the end of it. You see, in the process of this cutting and burning of chaff and tares and whatever it needs to take place in order for us to get that grain, the, 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 good, the good part of wheat, it wasn't just tares and chaff that had to be burned away. You see, also what had to be burned away was was the grain that could never separate itself from chaff. You see, chaff carried the grain throughout its life cycle. Chaff held the grain from from the moment that God allowed it to start to grow until the moment it was ready to be harvested. Chaff isn't always a bad thing. Just because it has to get burned away and cut away and separated doesn't mean it was a bad thing. You see, chaff helped the wheat grow. It helped the grain grow up until that point. You see, not everything in your life starts off bad, but it doesn't mean it's always going to be good to stick with you. There are things in your life that God allows you, allows to grow you and develop you, but there's going to come a point in your spiritual walk when God's saying, that's enough. Now it's time to let go. I'm going to allow you to be a grown man, a grown boy, grown girl, grown woman, and you're going to stand on your own two feet and we're going to walk together now. You see, the, the chaff at some point in the grain's life is a crutch. And the question for us is, what are the spiritual crutches that we've been holding on to longer than we need to? You see, what else was burned was also grain unable to physically separate itself from chaff. Because the only thing that's perfect in a farmer's eyes is pure grain. If the grain can't let go of the chaff, it is no longer usable and it might as well be burned with the rest of the chaff. And so for the individuals in this room, if there are things in your life, whether it was good in the beginning or bad, if you're not able to let yourself go when God says it's time to move on, you are no longer usable in the eyes of God. You see, now we can jump into the threshing floors. And I, you know, this is, I read the entire chapter during the 915 service. I think I'll cut it down a little bit. But I, 
As I was studying for today's message, I came across Chronicles, First Chronicles uh, chapter 21, and it, it was so powerful to me. And I'm going to read a bunch of it, and hopefully it sticks out, but I'm asking you to just kind of bear with me for a moment, because there's a lot of scripture, but I promise you, if you get the meat of it, it's real good. And so First Chronicles 21, this is a point in the lifetime of David when he was the king over Jerusalem or the king of Israel and Judah. And Satan, it says that Satan stood up to David, stood up against Israel and provoked David and said to, hey, you need to go take a census of the land. Go number the people of Israel. And David sent forth and he said, hey, give me my general. His name is Joab. Give me my general and everybody underneath him. And he said, Joab, go out throughout all the land and count the number of Israel. And Joab was a great man of God. You see, Joab was submitted to David, but he was still strong enough to question the king when something felt wrong in his eyes. And Joab said, hey, let me, let me, let me just read it directly from the word. It says, and Joab answered, the Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord, the king, are they not all the, my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will, he, why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Joab is saying, what is the point of us counting the people of Israel? What's the real purpose behind it? I don't think this is the right thing to do, king. But David said, nevertheless, I want you to do it anyway. And so it took Joab and his generals and his lieutenants nine months and 20 days. And they went throughout all the land of Israel. And they went from the front to the back, the top, the bottom, and everything in between. And it took them nine and a half months in order to count every single person that was in Israel. And they came back to the king and they said, hey, David, these are the numbers that we came back with. He said that there are a hundred, there's a thousand a hundred thousand uh, men with that, that can draw a sword in Israel and 400,000 and 400 score with 10,000 men that can draw a sword in Judah. These are the numbers. You got a big, powerful army, king. And the second that David heard the numbers, he was convicted. You see, when I read this, I was so confused on what, what the big deal was in, in David's heart. He was just trying to know the numbers. You see, we count, we count everybody that comes into service every single week here. But, but in David's heart, the second he heard the numbers, he realized that the reason why he wanted to know was based out of pride in his own heart. He wanted to know how many people he ruled because he believed that it was him that was ruling the people. In that moment, David used the population of Israel as an ego boost to his own ability and authority. And he realized that he started to see the opportunities that God gave him as something he built for himself instead of something that God gave him in the first place. And he began to look at the seat that God placed him as as something that he did for himself instead of something that God placed him in by himself. You see, God, wherever you are in your life, the only reason you're there is because of God. And in that moment when David heard all these numbers, it's like his ego started getting to get a little too big and he was convicted. And it goes on and it says then, David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant for I have done a very foolish thing. And then the Lord, he didn't speak to David. He went to Gad, who is a prophet of Israel. In fact, it says it's David's seer or David's pastor. And he said, go tell David, saying, thus saith the Lord, I offer you 
the three things. Choose one of these three things and I will do it. You see, before there was ever a genie in the bottle that grants you three wishes, there was God and Gad together. And this is crazy because it's the opposite of a genie saying, hey, whatever you want, I'm going to do it for you. Instead, this is God saying, hey, I'm going to bring the belt out. I'm going to bring the Home Depot paint stir, and I'm going to bring a wick from outside, from the tree outside. You get to pick which one you're going to get beat with. And he said, hey, these are the three things. These are your options. You're going to get beat. Just pick which one you want, right? And so Gad came to David and said unto him, thus saith the Lord, choose thee. Choose thee, these three things. Either three years of famine in the land or three months to be destroyed by thy foes while the sword of thine enemies overtake thee or three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself on what shall be brought upon thee. In other words, Gad said, hey, these are the three options. You can do three years of famine Three months of running away from an enemy or three days of pestilence and the angel of the Lord destroying the entire land. See, I I think that this decision kind of shows us exactly the kind of personality David had. See, David's, David's a leader. He's a king. He's the guy that topples giants with pebbles. He's the guy that says, you know what? I don't feel like dealing with the problem for three years. Let's just rip the bandaid off real quick. Just give me the three days. So he said, I want the three days of whatever God has in store for us because I trust in the mercies of God. Now, little did David know exactly what that meant when he said, I want the three days. And so it goes on and and it says that, and God sent an angel. uh, Let me back up a little bit. And David said unto Gad, "I uh, I, I am in great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hands of man. And so the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell in Israel 70,000 men, which means in the span of three days, God killed 70,000 of David's people, and he wasn't even done. After 70,000 people dying, it goes on and says, and God sent the angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. In fact, he, he destroyed everything else in Israel, but now he's on his way to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld and repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough. Stay your sword, put it in its sheath. So as this angel was coming to destroy Jerusalem, That's when God just said, stop, hold on, just pause. And this part's super important. And it says, and the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You see, the angel was on his way to Israel. But before he could continue and God said, stop, the same place where he said, stop, was at a threshing floor, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between earth and heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretching over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel were now clothed in sackcloth and they fell on their faces and began to pray. You see, David could physically see this angel ready to destroy Jerusalem. He could literally, he was standing at the threshing floors and he's looking up into the sky, seeing an angel getting ready to smite down Jerusalem. And he began to pray with the elders. And everything changed from that point forward. 
You see, David went up and saying to Gad that which we spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and said, hey, basically Gad is saying, hey, this is from God. You need to buy this threshing floor and you need to build your altar on it. In fact, this threshing floor was so important. It was the first place where David ever built an altar. It was on this threshing floor. It was a special, special place. And so David went to Ornan and said, hey, I want to buy this place from you. And Ornan said, no, take everything. In fact, let me give you some cattle to make sacrifices with it as well and David said no 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 I'm buying it because I can't sacrifice unto God what's not a sacrifice to me and so he he bought the place from Ornan and and God commanded the angel to sheathe his sword and at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite then he sacrificed then he built his altar for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that season in the high place of Gibeon. You see here, our first church, we're at a specific time in the history of first church. If you've been here for any time at all, you, 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 can, you can see some things changing within the church. It's pretty obvious. You see, God changes things within a church and usually it's slow enough for people to keep up with. But every once in a while, he just kind of turns the page and everything kind of seems like it's changing real fast. And I believe that this message and this specific chapter and, and these, this threshing floor that I've been digging into helped me understand the mindset of God in seasons like this where everything kind of seems up in the air. But to understand that God's hands is still in control no matter where we are. You see, they'll put a picture behind me of a threshing floor. But a threshing floor was a, it wasn't anything fancy. It was, it was a place of work. It was a place where things just got done. You see, a threshing floor, they would place wheat in a circle around a big mound. And they would take a, a, what's called a threshing sled and hook it up to oxen. And that oxen would literally just trample over all the wheat. Day in and day out, over and over and over and over. You see, the wheat had the chaff and the grain connected to it until you brought it to the threshing floor. And this heavy oxen and this heavy sled would just go over this wheat over and over and over until the farmer felt it was time enough. And then he would take a winnowing fork or a pitchfork and he would shove it into that dirt and he would throw it up in the air. And as he threw it up in the air, because the grain was heavier than the chaff, the grain would fall to the ground and the chaff would blow away with the wind. And then they would gather the chaff, burn it up and take the grain and use it. You see, the threshing sled was a special instrument as well because on the bottom of it, it had all these misshapen holes and rocks just kind of stuck to the bottom of that sled. And it began to agitate the chaff to a place where it didn't want to hold on to the grain anymore. And it agitated the grain to a place where it didn't want to hold on to the chaff anymore because the grain is stronger than the chaff at that point in its life. And God's trying to do that in our lives, whether you see it or not. Whenever you feel like there's some agitation in the spirit, understand that this is a part of the process for God to take you as you are and make you something greater than what you thought possible. You see, so often 
We're stuck with the mentality of I can't, I can't live without the chaff in my life. I can't live without the things that held me until this point. But God's trying to separate you so that you can see that the will of God is so much better when you just trust in all things with God. It's so easy to get stuck on these things from our past, stuck on people in our lives that have held us until a point. But God's saying, I want to separate you so that you can produce on your own, so that you can make your own fields, so that you can, you can create wheat of your own. But I can't do that if you're still clinging on to things in your life that I told you you need to let go of, that I already told you this is a season of change and you're just holding on, on and on and on and on. You see, the meat of the scripture in 1 Chronicles 21 happened after the 70,000 men were slain by that angel. Prophetically, God stopped the angel right above the threshing floor of Ornan. And David could physically see the angel getting ready to charge against Jerusalem. But like a dog with a shot collar on, that angel could not move past the threshing floor. He could not move past the place of separation. He couldn't move past the place where God said, build an altar. You want to know why? Because the judgment of God stops where your threshing floors begin. The things that we are owed in our lives, you see, the, the price of sin is death. But God's saying, my judgment will stop the second you find an altar, the second you find a threshing floor, the second you build something to separate yourself. That's when my mercies begin. Because until that point, you are still owed every single thing that you have paid for. If you don't have an altar in your life, you will be burned with the rest. If you're not willing to burn the things up in your life that need to be taken care of, God will handle the rest. He'll, he'll burn everything. You see, if I'm being completely honest, because of the season that we're in as a church, I've had a couple, couple nights of doubt and fear and questions coming through my mind. And man, what, what, what does first church look like moving forward? What does first church What's it going to feel like going forward? You know, pastor's health is, you know, he got hit hard and, and, and he might not be the same as he was before. But what does this look like moving forward for the church? And so I began to look back upon the history of First Church because I believe First Church is a, is a spirit-led church, which means that moments in services like this make defining calls on what's going to happen in the next season of the church. You see, it was about five years ago. I couldn't find the exact date, but if you were there, you remember. Five years ago about, at that point, we just launched a new church called Ascend Church in Royal Oak at that point. And it, and it took a lot from this church. It cost this church a lot of people. It cost this church a lot of time. It cost this church a lot of money. It, it, it took something out of us. When you produce something, it takes something from you. And at that service, I remember it so obviously. I remember it so clearly in my memory. It was when Victor Jackson began to preach and he began to prophesy over First Church. And he said, First Church, oftentimes after a mother gives birth, there should be joy in the room. There should be celebration in the room. There should be excitement in the room. But for whatever reason, it feels like after launching Ascend, it still feels like there's still pain in the house. 
And he explained and he said, the reason why there still seems to be pain after creating something so amazing is because you're not just going to give birth to one thing. God's giving you twins. The reason why you still have pain is because God's ready to pull something out of you again. We're not done with the blessings of God, he explained. He said there's still more in what God's trying to do in this church. And we didn't know what that meant exactly until just a little bit later. That's when pastor began to speak about another building. That's when pastor said, hey, all those years I've been talking about building on, that, on, that, on the right side of this church property, I'm ready to really start now. That's when pastor got the vision again, reignited with the calling that God's placed inside of his life to build a new building in that grass. A few years later, on March 27th, 2022, Dan Mitchell came up and he began to preach to our church. This was right after he had his heart replaced in surgery. And he told amazing stories about these testimonies of people in his church who went through the same Let's Imagine campaign. And he talked about all these incredible testimonies of people getting blessed by God when they sacrificed everything that they had. And he began to explain what a covenant was with God. He explained that a covenant is a promise from God and it's prophetic and it's something only God can do and we can't. You see, God is the only thing in this universe that can keep a promise 100%. We lie, we mess up, we can't hold these things that we just say. But when God says it, it's done. And he said that a covenant is God saying, hey, if you do this, I'm going to do this. And he said in that service, he said it so many times, but he said, first church is going to look completely different at the end of the campaign as it was from the beginning of the campaign. He said, that's a covenant. If you would just sacrifice in ways you never gave before, he said, God is going to make this church completely different. It's going to look different. It's going to sound different. It's going to feel different than when you started it in the first place. Very few of us could have ever guessed what that actually looks like. On April 10th, 2022, a couple weeks later, Mark Morgan preached at our commitment service and he began to prophesy over this church. And he said that this church is being challenged to build an altar. He explained that just because you have a prayer life doesn't mean you have an altar in your life. Just because you pray doesn't mean you go to a place spiritually where you rip apart the things in your life that need to be torn apart. It doesn't mean that you're separating yourself. It doesn't mean that you're following after the convictions of God. But he's saying if the church would find an altar and build that altar, then he said that the altar that we build would align itself with the throne of God and angels would ascend and descend from this church. And this church would be an apostolic hub and it would be a place where people go from and go to. It'll be a place that changes and impacts this world if only we would build an altar on november 12th 2023 a couple weeks ago the music can come here in a second we held our let's imagine service this is something that we do on the first sunday of the month but this month specifically we we just we held it on the second sunday in order to be halfway through our let's imagine campaign so exactly a year and a half through our three-year campaign, we held this service. And on that service, pastor decided to just wait so that we can do it halfway through. And he wanted to update the church on exactly where we stood financially so that we knew exactly where we were. And Pastor Mike spoke 
that morning service, finding out that he was supposed to speak at nine in the morning. And in that service, we found out that we hit $3.1 million, which far exceeded our miraculous goal that we set at the beginning of the campaign. And we were told that we're no longer starting the campaign, but we're actually now finishing the campaign. That Sunday night, pastor found out that he has a brain tumor and that the doctors need to act quickly. Halfway through our campaign, it looked like everything's changing. And in that moment, in that season, those few days, pastor decided to finalize a decision that he's been thinking about and praying for a lot, praying about for a long time, and that's to make Pastor Mike the co-pastor alongside of him. And in this season right now, we might look at where we are right now. It's so hard to just take a step back because when you're right in the middle of it, all you can see is what you're in the middle of. But in the middle of it, it kind of seems like, man, everything's moving so fast. But when you look at it from an outside perspective, you can see everything is lining up exactly the way the will of God is for this church. If you've been doubting, if you've been questioning, I promise you, as far as what I can see, everything is lined up exactly the way it's supposed to be. You see, as far as I can see, we're in the middle of the promise of God. We're in the middle of what God has said we need to go through. And I'm excited for what we're doing in this church. You see, similar to Israel, God was waiting on this church for a long time. You see, pastor had this vision so many years ago. I remember as a child playing with Hot Wheels underneath the pew over there, listening to pastor saying, hey, I want to build in that grass. I want to build in that grass. I want to build in that grass. Pastor had this vision for decades before it was time to go. And before pastor was ever born, God had that vision ready to give our pastor. But it wasn't God that was waiting on timing or economy. It wasn't, it wasn't pastor. He wasn't waiting on pastor. Pastor already had the vision. God was waiting on a church that was ready to take that vision. You see, similar to the children of Israel, he was saying, I'm waiting for the day when a church can say that the milk and honey and giant grapes is so much more appealing to me than the giants that take that land. I refuse to allow the fear of what might happen to hold me back from the promises that God says will happen. And the church is finally ready and we can't allow moments like this to challenge or shake our faith in God. God is still working in this place place. And if you are in question or in doubt of that, I promise you that God's working and he's still good. He's still good. You see, we're going to pray in a moment. In fact, you can stand in this house, but it's so important that when we come to these altars and we begin to worship God together in unity and we begin to seek God and say, God, take me to the threshing floor. There's so much power in a prayer like that, but only when somebody actually means it. Don't say separate me if you don't mean it. Don't tell God you're ready if you don't mean it. I promise you, your genuine, your, your genuine prayers mean so much more than just the fake words that we can utter whenever we feel like saying something. When I look at the lifestyle or the lifespan of Judas in the Bible, Something stuck out to me recently. 
We often paint a picture of Judas as somebody who's just evil, terrible, worst, worst guy in the world. How can you be that so close to Jesus and yet betray him at the end of it? I believe that Judas is closer to me and you than we can possibly understand. You see, Judas, Judas was known by God, but Judas didn't know God. Every single time Judas would sneak his hand in the offering plate, God knew about it. Every single time Judas said, hey, don't waste that, don't waste that perfume, we can sell it. God knew that in his heart, he was saying, I want some for myself. And Jesus knew every single time or, or that last time when Judas went to the Sanhedrin and he said, and he took the 30 shekels of silver, he knew it, Jesus knew it in that moment. But when did Jesus call Judas a betrayer? Jesus said, you betrayed me. When Judas came up to him and kissed him on his cheek, Jesus said, you betrayed me with a kiss. He didn't say you betrayed me for the money. You didn't, you didn't betray me for the shekels. You didn't betray me for all the times I already knew about. You betrayed me with a kiss. Why do you say that? You see, there's something that hurts God to his very core. That's when we fake our intimacy with him. It's when we pretend that we're closer to him than he knows we actually are. So I'm going to open up these altars, but if you come, I'm asking you, don't pretend like you know God if you don't. Be honest with your prayers. Be honest. Man, how would Jesus have have responded if Judas came and said, I don't know you, God, but I I, I want to know you more. I'm not going to pretend to kiss you because I don't know you. But God's saying, hey, If you want to get my attention, be honest with me. And I'll be honest with you because I know who you are, Judas. If you want to be separated, be honest. If you don't, be honest. But I'm challenging you in this moment to take a step of faith and say, when it comes time to place my life on an altar, to place my life on a threshing floor, that God's going to sustain me after the fact. When he removes everything in my life that shouldn't have been there in the first place, when he removes the things in my life that I've been dependent on spiritually, God's going to hold you. He's going to sustain you. Come to the front. Let's just pray together and say, God, wherever you want to take me in my life, I trust you. I trust you more than I trust myself. I trust you in the name of Jesus.